Today's readings are going to be from the book of Jonah. They are found on page 916 of your pew Bibles, and we start there and go on. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging seas grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, 
taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. For who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. But to Jonah, this, see, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take, my, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord. Good morning. My name is Nick, I'm on the pastoral staff here, and we are in the third week of this series about conflict, about stewarding our conflict. It comes from this deep belief that we have that our relationships are a gift from God, and that even in the midst of conflict, we have opportunities to bless God, to bless those people that we may be in conflict in, and to become more like Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be delving into this text that was just read for us so wonderfully from the book of Jonah that's about conflict that's bigger than us, bigger than people one-on-one. -on -one. And it's big, it's, it's meaty, it's scary for me standing here thinking about it. And so I want to invite you to pray with me now. God, thank you for the gift of a world that you made, the gift of the reality that we can interact with each other, that we are all unique image bearers of you, and that that has tremendous beauty in it, but also tremendous room for brokenness and hurt and pain. So God, we pray that you would help us to hold our pain honestly this morning to hear your voice speaking to us, and to discern together how you may be calling us to speak into conflicts that are bigger than any one of us. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Go at once to Nineveh. This to us sounds like a simple enough instruction from God, but layered underneath it are centuries of baggage, of deep conflict that informs Jonah's decision. Jonah's reaction, which is instinctive and immediate. We read no response to God's word coming to Jonah, except that Jonah flees. Jonah flees in the exact opposite direction. Jonah flees further than he was called to go the other way. Jonah wants nothing to do with Nineveh. In fact, Jonah wants nothing to do with Israel if this is how the God of Israel intends to solve this problem. This problem, of course, is the problem with the Assyrian Empire. It's a problem which began most recently with the grandfather of Israel's current king, who ruled during a time of great decline. They lost wars and they lost land. Their people were captured as slaves, slain in city streets, made to serve the needs of their new occupiers and masters. Two generations of such hard oppression takes deep roots in the psyches of people. Assyria and Nineveh, at the heart of Assyria, is certainly a dangerous place. And the suggestion that they should now get a warning from the God of Israel about their violence and evil is surely offensive. Two generations later, and suddenly God decides to act. And God acts not in defense of Israel, not to crush their oppressor, but to give them a chance to repent. And what made matters that much worse, and probably that much more unfathomable for Jonah, was the reality that in recent years, Israel was actually winning. Their current king, Jeroboam, had expanded Israel's borders to lands and territories that they had not held since the time of David and Solomon. Until the word of the Lord came to Jonah on that day, he probably hoped and dreamed that one day Israel may even conquer the Assyrian Empire itself, that God's vengeance against Israel's enemies would mean their destruction and not their salvation. The direct oppression of Israelites by Assyria was over. It wasn't happening anymore. The violence of Nineveh against Jerusalem was over. But it wasn't forgotten. The deep pains of the conflict, the loss of family members, of productive years of life, of the joys of freedom, would linger in these people for a long time yet. And it's clear in Jonah's reactions throughout this story that his problem was not just the, pro the conflict with Nineveh. His problem wa weren't just the harms that Assyria had caused against him and his people. Jonah's problem, in fact, was the Assyrian people themselves. It wasn't enough for Assyria to stop. They'd been forced to stop. That wasn't good enough. It wasn't going to be enough for Assyria to repent. An apology would not bring back dignity or loved ones. There was no reconciling these two people. No resolution to this very old and very long conflict that would undo the reality in the mind and heart of Jonah, and probably all of Israel itself, that Assyrians were evil. They just were. 
You can't change that. The Ninevites, in fact, were violent. That's just who they are. There's no stopping that. Jonah's issue wasn't with war, wasn't with slavery. It was with Assyrians themselves. And he was sure that the only solution to a problem like Assyria was to make sure that Assyria was never a problem again. And in holding to this sure and certain knowledge, Jonah makes winning this conflict his idol. And he sets himself up as wiser than God himself. The racism which Jonah holds in his heart his dismay at even the idea of the mercy of God to these people, it's not unique to Jonah. It was surely the cultural reality of his day. Probably all of Israel felt this way. Feelings were shared broadly, and his behavior was probably affirmed again and again in the behavior of others. He wasn't unique. So too, it's not unique to his time. The very sins of conflict which bound Jonah's heart so firmly threaten us in our daily lives as well, though it's easy for many of us to go happily through life, blind to them and unchallenged to overcome them. The reality of our fallen world simply is that conflict does not only exist on the level of you and me, on the level of individuals who have been harmed or may have harmed others. But conflict, in fact, is also far above us. Conflict even exists cosmically as a world which God created and called good is purged of evil and brought back from the very brink of death itself. Conflict exists in principalities and powers and the idolatry of our hearts in naming other things as God that are not God. Too often, these things have at their root the power provided by racism and sexism, by ableism and ageism and nationalism, and so many other words for systems of conflict, of identifying ourselves in a certain group and posturing ourselves over and above others, of trying to claim power for ourselves, solving the myriad problems of our lives by inflicting pain and suffering by excluding and marginalizing those who are not like us in whatever way we may have determined and for whatever reasons. We see this continue to play out in long-standing between nations even today. Not that picture yet. Thanks, Rachel. (laughs) We'll we'll get there. We see it playing out in long-standing tensions between nations today who are occupied and brutalized by neighboring nations generations ago, and the distrust lingers. Meaningful reconciliation is not present. We see such large-scale conflict in our own country, where the glass ceiling remains all too real for many women in professions. And the concept of a gender-balanced cabinet was outrageous to many in our country. We observe it in our relationships with indigenous peoples in Canada and the long-standing suffering that perhaps our behaviors contribute to, though we are all too happy to say that such atrocities ended in previous generations. These things are identifiable even in our own city, 
where visible minorities are much more likely to be stopped by police and asked for identification than those of us who are not. It's ingrained into our society. It's ingrained into our schools and into our workplaces and even into our churches that these kinds of conflict are natural, that sometimes they're even okay, that they can never be resolved, that the only resolution is the triumph of one group over another. And how we locate ourselves in these broader narratives defines how we interact with everything else and each other. They define the stories we believe about the world, about our neighbors and ourselves. A little over a week ago, this video went viral. And it is perhaps the best example in recent weeks of the depth of the kind of conflict that we're talking about today. On January 18th, after the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and during the Indigenous People's March, there was this confrontation. And during the following days, a myriad of different descriptions of events were offered and shared, and by and large, people were able to choose to side with whomever they were predisposed to believing and siding with. For some, the reality of those red Make America Great Again hats is a symbol of profound violence and racism, of sexism and misogyny, that that hat is a violent symbol of a dangerous regime. And it's paired with a stare of contempt and defiance. For others, that young boy looks a lot like them, looks a lot like their children, and their politics resonates with the politics of many others. And the choice of the indigenous elder to walk up to this teenager and beat his drum was not seen as an attempt at nonviolent intervention or peacekeeping, but of intimidation and harassment toward a group that had already endured racist and homophobic slurs from a group of black Hebrew Israelites. This was a cultural flashpoint and an opportunity for the hardness of our hearts toward those whose stories we do not know to simplify a tremendously complex and sad story. A story that's about the brokenness of our society, the tribalism that rules all of our hearts the story of conflict which we live out and passively affirm again and again, even as we read and watch the news. We see children wearing symbols that they cannot imagine the complexity of and ascribe to them the harms of the system itself when they have been taught no better. Or we too readily look to assign the blame to those who po whose politics differs from our own, and to minimize the real harm caused by the arrogance of teenage boys, too confident that their answers are the only and correct ones. So we look to Nineveh, and we know them only as our enemies, only as the ones who have too often caused harm to us, who have been lesser than us or by whose powerlessness we have found our power. And we choose again and again not to imagine another way. We choose to resign ourselves to the reality that the conflict between us and them, the deep hurts that exist, the harm that has been done and continues to be done, 
is something that will perpetuate itself regardless of our actions or our attitudes, that we can offer no salve to heal. It's bigger than we can tackle, stronger than we can imagine, deeper than we can plumb the depths of. But there's hope. There's hope in this story because the conflict between Israel and Assyria was something that God would overcome. If not through his prophet, then through the very people of Assyria themselves. Finally, Jonah agrees to go to Nineveh, not because of his great love for that city, not because God's heart had finally gripped his own, but because of his honor demanding it. He is a prophet of God, and he says that we, he will fulfill his vows, but only just. Cry out against Nineveh? Fine, but no more than that. Jonah arrives at the city, and the text tells us it's a three-day journey through the city. So the center of town is a day and a half walking. He walks a day into the suburbs, and he preaches probably the laziest sermon I've ever heard. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. It makes me wonder why we prepare so much, because it works. That sermon works, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The people proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth. And when news reached the king, probably a day or two later, the king takes off his royal robes and does the same. He enshrines the fast and the repentance that the people had already begun into law. And he does this not because he was told to, but because he hopes that this better way will be better for the fate of Nineveh as well. Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. And God does. In the story, I think that we have to notice that the change happens first at the margins. Jonah doesn't preach in the royal palace. The king doesn't convert first and try to enforce this new way. It begins with the people. It begins with the traders on the road, the citizens who heard the message first and changed their hearts. The evil of Nineveh, the violence and its vile ways, is not overcome first in a systematic reform, but it's in the transformation of people's very lives. Only by shining light into the darkness of individuals can the ever-growing light change the way the whole city sees itself and its relationship with its neighbors. A tremendously large city with conflicts still larger than itself overcomes all that evil because people decide that they'll change their hearts when God provides a way. And of course, Jonah is dismayed. Jonah knew this would happen. He knew God would relent. He knew God would show mercy. And so he would rather die. Jonah is so invested in this conflict playing out the way he wanted it to that he views the repentance of Nineveh as a victory for the Ninevites. It was always going to have to be him or them, and if God has chosen them, then God should strike him dead. But God reminds Jonah, who cares more for desert vines than for flesh and blood people, that Nineveh knew no better. 
And when they learned better, they repented. Nineveh was full of uneducated, unaware, morally untaught people. Should God destroy them for that? And when they heard the truth, they believed and they changed their ways. Well, that reminder of the good mercy of God is where the book ends. It just ends like that. I've often reflected and took heart in the fact that eventually this book gets written. Probably, eventually, Jonah tells this story. Jonah's heart eventually must have been transformed as well. Jonah always knew God's goodness, always knew the mercy that was rightly offered to the whole world, and eventually he must come to see that it is in this way of goodness, it is in the mercy and patience of a God who pities people who knew no better and uses even arrogant and half-hearted prophets to bring them back into the light. It's in that way of this God that the systematic powers of evil are overcome once and for all in the transformation of human hearts. Friends, the same is true still for us today. The same hope is offered for you today. Perhaps you have been an unwitting participant in patterns of evil in our society, in our world. Perhaps you have surrendered yourself to the ever-shifting conflicts of our age and succumbed to the violence and evil that is done. You need to know that God offers forgiveness and mercy and promises to transform even those most evil systems through you and through people like you who choose a better way. Or perhaps you're like Jonah. Maybe you've always known the goodness of God, and that goodness, frankly, hasn't served your purposes. Maybe you have experienced the hurt that's too deep for words. Maybe you can't fathom a better way a way to resolve a conflict with people who have benefited so greatly from perpetuating a struggle that you'd rather win than just resolve. Our merciful God desires to help you to overcome that battle by ridding the peace of it that you have chosen to harbor in your own heart. And so together, I'm inviting you and all of us to think it over. What are your feelings and behavior toward those who are unlike you? How do you feel about immigrants, about refugees? How do you feel about Muslims, about atheists? How do you feel about unemployed people? or people who rely on government disability checks? How do you feel about women's rights activists or Black Lives Matter? How do you feel about middle-aged men and teenagers in mega hats? There are narratives about each of these that our culture offers to us, that we can choose to believe and to simplify the other. There is a societal struggle 
that knowingly or unknowingly we have participated in and which God calls us to repent of and to act as agents of reconciliation within. To challenge the harms that have been done, yes. To desire an end to cycles of wrongdoing, yes. But also to see the real humanity that's present on the other side. The belovedness of even those whose stories you've never before known. So this week, and in the coming weeks, recognize those places of conflict where people groups and generations are pitted against each other, where the story seems far bigger than you and me, and consider your part. Have you been a blind participant in this system of evil? Repent, and in your daily life, choose to not live the narrative which we so easily tell ourselves. Have you known about that system of conflict for too long, suffered or thrived because of it, and somehow invested your life in the undoing of the other side? Repent and believe that there is a good for those who you have participated in harming or who have harmed you, which is also your good too. Know that our God is a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from sending disaster. Trust in his goodness and mercy and humble yourselves, changing your part in even the gravest systems of evil in our time, knowing that our faithful God will heal and will restore all things, even those very deep wounds, all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together, church. God, some of us in this room get it. Some of us get Jonah's pain, his anger and his hurt, because we've been hurt too many times We've been pushed down too many times. The anger is our only recourse, it seems. Take the anger of our hearts, we pray, and call us to be your people of peace. Some of us in this room, God, have swam in the waters of white supremacy and patriarchy and moral superiority and whatever else for far too long that we can't even tell what it is anymore. We're blind and we're ignorant. God, open our eyes and cause us to repent.
Jesus Christ, help us to know, to see and believe that the world you are forming, the kingdom you are ushering in is bigger and better than all these conflicts which we find our security in. Reveal your kingdom to still others through our lives and for your sake. Amen.